Hello and welcome to Nerds Amalgamated. I'm the professor and my co-host is the DJ. Our hey friend guys. Debbie Boy is still indisposed with his assignments, so it's just us for tonight. How have you been going, DJ? I've been going good. Getting cold, but good nonetheless. I like the cold. I thrive in this. Because, you see, the problem is my brain. It's like, it's blood cool. Like, instead of water cooling a PC, it's like having blood going through it. But <laughs> the rest of me is a really bad radiator. <laughs> So when it's cold outside, I perform better. So your secret is not coffee. No. It's cold. <laughs> yeah. All right. Now I know what to get for you on your birthday next time. Maybe an air conditioner. I've got an air conditioner. It's bloody really- expensive. <laughs> I take it you performed really well at work when the air conditioner is on? Yeah. But then we get people complaining it's too cold. <laughs> I seem to be the only one there who never complains that it's too cold. And sometimes it's like, it's 24 degrees, so I don't know what they're whinging about. Uh, Come on, this is... The the people we're talking about here, like, people complain about anything. They complain about anything and everything. Yeah, right, we'll just have to listen to you for five minutes. (laughs) But uh, anyway, our first topic for tonight is a science topic. I've actually got two science topics for tonight, but uh, the next one's further on in the show. So, the first one for tonight is the upside of virtual meetings. Now, you've read the, uh, you're looking at the paper for this, haven't you, DJ? The, uh, the abstract of this, and it's interesting. Like, because, so, oh, sorry. what's the advantage? The advantage to this would be, I don't have, venues don't have to pay a, a bucket load of money just to, just to prepare stuff um, for, pe- for the guests, and they could do this in the comfort of their own home. And the other advantage, I reckon, like, even aside from that, I don't go to many conferences. I go to a couple of um, game dev conferences in, in Brisbane, but um, they're few and far between. And most of the conferences I watch are online because it costs way too much for me to fly to Germany for GDC. Which is a so, for you. Uh, right, even just a ticket to GDC is quite a lot. Wow. I think the GDC ticket, just off the top of my head, was uh, like 1300 bucks. Oh, that's with a flight, right? Or, or is that for no. the tickets? Um, yeah, okay, I'm trying to open the uh, gdconf.com website, and I'm getting forbidden. You don't have permission to access this resource, <laughs> which is odd. But uh, let's see, a comment here on Reddit from 2016 says that the uh, the main conference pass is a thousand bucks on sale. Oh man! Yeah. So, um, but GDC is really good at recording their speeches, and I'd like to see more conferences go online because it um, makes it a lot better quality for like, if they if they're planning ahead to record, it makes it a lot better for those of us who want to listen from home. Well, in this article, they're saying that um, this new for, um, format poses many many technical and organizational challenges, but it offers opportunities such as wide reaching wide reading wider audiences, uh, reducing the carbon footprint of meeting travel, and improving diversity and equity. For some meetings, the shift may be permanent. So I think they're looking more into the aspect of instead of just traveling to the uh, traveling to the said location, you could do this at the comfort of your own home, and you don't have to uh, change into and you don't have to change clothes. Great. Although, as I keep in mind, um, the other advantage is you don't end up with all your doctors trapped on a cruise off the coast of Chile because they went to a conference. <laughs> 
there was um, a conference cruise held earlier this year off the coast of Chile. The coronavirus flew in and shut down South America, and they could not come home. <laughs> yeah. Talk about bad timing. <laughs> It was not great. Uh, the other, what's interesting though is, I wonder how companies like um, would deal with this sort of situation though. I mean, if this becomes a new norm, do you get like, oh, we're gonna um, restrict your conference budget? You can do this online. Yes, please, because <laughs> it saves money for the company, it saves money for the staff, it saves greenhouse emissions from flying. Like, I reckon the. Um, you see all those photos of the air being cleaner because nobody's going anywhere. Yeah. That's what we could have all the time if we stopped flying. <laughs> yeah, but do we really want to, though? I mean... Well, I reckon flying for, like, um, the pleasure is not too bad, although the price would probably go up hugely if uh, it's not being subsidized by corporate travel. Yeah. I reckon the, um, like, they probably rely on corporate travel for a lot of uh, flights. But um, like, there's no reason we can't have flights. Yeah. Just we should try to cut back because even the most efficient aircraft are like the equivalent of a small car per person. So that's not any better than driving. See, I will see if there's one group, if there's one sector that needs to have limited flying, it's the politicians. Man, those guys fly so many times. Yep. Like it, it, the scientists should be fly. Should should have more flying benefits than the politicians. Politicians, all they do is they just, they just fly from one country to another, chin wag, and do a photo op, and that's it. Yeah, I don't. Um, not entirely sure why politicians feel like they have to fly so far, even if it's just to a footy game in your own country. Yeah, yeah. But the, uh, my biggest gripe with this, with um, doing online meetings, is. Imagine if you're in the middle of a of a keynote speech and all of a sudden the internet goes down. I mean, the power could go off in your, your conference hall. That happens. Um, is it CEX, I think? A couple of years ago, CEX had a big problem because they were drawing so much power, they kept tripping the breaker. <laughs> and that's a big technology show. So if you trip the breaker, it, it doesn't keep going. It can't show off your fancy new TV if the fancy new TV doesn't work. And yeah, like I said, sometimes the internet connection would be, would be pretty bad. Like um, I remember when Steve Jobs was introducing the iPhone and he was trying to use the internet off the um, building and it didn't work at one point. And that's why you don't do live demos. You pre-record it. <laughs> what what could be the other problems that you would see on the you could see with this situation though? I mean, there are some there are advantages, true, but well, places like Vegas would lose a lot of money. Oh yeah, because yeah. there are so many major conferences held in Vegas, and they rely on the tourism. Yeah. But uh, anyway, speaking of flying, DJ, would an invisible jet have invisible emissions? <laughs> Uh, I don't know. You have to ask Wonder Woman about that. I I, I can't say. If, if Ooh, it segue. <laughs> but speaking of the uh, what with one speaking of Wonder Woman, uh, the director for Wonder Woman nineteen eighty four has been doing a couple of um, hot takes lately, and uh, she based she was talking to Total Film magazine in relation to the new Wonder Woman movie that's coming out. And this Wonder Woman, by the way, Wonder Woman 1984, will take place decades later where 
it's the continuation of Diana's story, but will be a different beast altogether. And what she basically said was, uh, to me, what that's that's what superhero that's what superhero movies period always were. I think the exception to that was Marvel had such success going through doing a shared universe. But but that certainly shouldn't be the status quo. I think you should look at comic books. This there's this huge variety of comic books, and their look and tone and world are radically different, and they don't always inevitably join together. Sometimes they do, and that's really fun, and that's the thing. Sometimes. <laughs> Sometimes. Not everything has to be the same and join together. Marvel, are you taking notes? <laughs> But here's the problem, though. Here's the problem. When Marvel do it, they do it well. When DC do it, it's it, it, it's a mess. <laughs> it's a it, it's a mess. Do Marvel do it well, or do they just churn out the same formulaic story over and over again? They do. Oh, I don't know. With okay, choose your answer carefully, DJ. Okay. I know you're a dirty Marvel hippie, but choose your answer carefully. Okay, with Marvel, okay, they they are formulaic, but here's the pro- here's the thing when it when it comes to the big when it comes to the big fight, like Infinity for War, for example, they lost the fight. They lost, and then they won it in the next movie. They won they it. They don't have the balls to permanently kill off their characters. Well, it's the same thing with DC when they killed off Superman and they brought him back. Yeah, sure, DC doesn't do it. Marvel doesn't do it much more. Yeah. Now, imagine how much more devastating Infinity War would be if they didn't bring everybody back in Endgame. Why does the good guy always have to win? Because, you know, it's the good guys, the good guys. <laughs> That's not telling a good story, though. Yeah, but it's not a mishmash of, of what, like, was taking one element from one end and one another element from another end. It's cons- it's not like borrowing from different elements. And and with Infinity War and um, Endgame, it's, um, they stuck to the store, they stuck to the source material. It's the sticking- source material was better than the actual movie. The source material is better than the actual movie, yes, but the set, but, it's the same result. So they couldn't even stick to the source material properly. They stuck to the source material and still screwed it up. With uh, in terms of Marvel, yeah. In terms of Marvel, uh, they didn't really screw. I mean, they didn't really screw it up. I mean, look at the fan reactions. Uh, look at the, how much money it made out of it. The fans are wrong. <laughs> the fans are wrong. The go- I will fight you <laughs> all. <laughs> If if anyone if any of our Marvel fans or DC fans are listening to this, okay, take note. It's the professor who said that, not me. <laughs> um, okay, so let me. So while you were watching Marvel movies, I studied <laughs> the Blade. <laughs> no, I didn't. But I so, will fight anyone who thinks that the Marvel movies are good cinema. Um, so anyway, so uh, Patty Jenkins was also continues on to say, but a lot of times they have their own run. I'm psyched that DC and frankly Marvel's actually doing a bit more now with some of the tone of Thor Ragnarok and Black Widow and Doctor Strange. They feel very different in tone, but I love that DC, but I love a but uh, but I love that about DC, and I've always thought that that's a wonderful thing about DC. They were all so different. I mean, I get where she's coming from. Like they should, each movie should have their own flavor, kind of thing. But sometimes it doesn't work, though. Like for example, the new Harley Quinn movie. Sure, it was. Sure, it was a different tone of a movie from the um, DC 
DC's shared universe, but it didn't end well. Wait, Harley Quinn was a different to the DC movie, and you're saying that's wrong, but the person we're talking about just said that's the thing they do right. They the the way that the, the way that Thor Ragnarok, Black Widow, and Doctor Strange, what they did was they did really well, like in terms of sticking to the source materials. Um, the, um, what's an what's an, there's, there's a word I'm trying to think of, and not um and, and not antagonizing your marketplace. That's what DC. That's what Harley Quinn did in um with with their movies. What they uh, basically did was they antagonized the market, the fan base, and they and they messed up the um characters as well. Like DC did a couple of things. Um, DC have done some good things, like for example, the Joaquin Phoenix Joker, and that was good. Like they did Wonder Woman, they did good. But when they did the Justice League and stuff, it was just studio. It was just messy. Like the not only the not only the directors were well, also involved in it, but you're still proving that point then, because this is the crossover stuff that's messy. Yeah, they're trying to say that they shouldn't do, um, and they shouldn't copy the MCU and do all the crossovers. Yeah, but Justice League is a crossover. Yeah, it's a crossover. But here's the problem, though. Here is the problem. Um, even though they'll say like, oh, don't do crossovers and stuff, you are going to see Warner Brothers saying, hey, let's do another crossover. So, of course they will, because marketing people are jerks. Yeah. And they have no artistic integrity. Wait, what's, what's artistic integrity again? <laughs> I didn't know you were a marketing person, DJ. Nah, but uh, that's uh, that's the mind of um, like your Warner Brothers CEO and your... Warner Brothers as a company, the corporations themselves, they don't really care about artistic integrity in, in itself. That's why um, Justice League didn't perform well because there was so much studio interference, and you can, and that's also the reason why um, there was a recent, there was a Fantastic Four movie that came out a long time ago, and studio interference caused that movie to go badly. Okay. Yeah. So I get where she's coming from. So, but... well, there's two elements to not messing up movies. There's not copying Marvel and there's not having executives. Time for all the indie filmmakers to come out and show us what they can do. Yeah. Come on, guys. Yeah. Don't mess this up. <laughs> I mean, wouldn't you be, I mean, wouldn't you be pissed off if, um, if some, if, Warner Brothers, for example, interfered in the Lord of the Rings adaptation if they would ever do a reboot of the Lord of the Rings. They will not, and if they do, we will never talk about it. (laughs) There is no way they're going to make a better movie, a better Lord of the Rings adaptation than Peter Jackson's. Yeah. So on to uh, things that don't do well. Next up, we have a video game. Okay, what's it about? Come on, DJ. You asked me to cue you in for this one. For your <laughs> joke. Oh, I, w- I, w- I will. I will. <laughs> just, we just have a video to... game that's doing badly, DJ. There's your <laughs> cue. Oh, you didn't end up doing it badly, but okay. You should have picked wait, wait, that one wait, up wait, anyway. Wait, 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 this video game. No, wait, this video game you're talking about. Are you talking about The Last of Us Part Two? No, I'm not. Ah, oh, nuts. The game is Warriorb. It's a um, Steam game that was released uh, about a week ago. And before release, they had a free demo, which was downloaded by 80,000 people and had 90% positive reviews out of over 200 reviews. Over 16,000 wishlist. 
and the game was released in Chinese, Russian, Spanish, French, Hungarian, and Romanian. And I assume English, but they don't say that there. And it flopped. Oh. Yeah. So they reckon 20% of their launch sales would come from people who had a wishlisted and 80% from other places. So um, the numbers here say that they've sold uh, 357 copies so far and 178 of them were on somebody's wishlist in three days. And even if sales stay the same, which they're not going to, sales will drop over time with any game. They, um, it's just flopped horribly. They've gone way under the, um, the expected numbers for wishlist sales. And they've got some uh, reasons for, they reckon it might be from here. So their price was too high and their discount too low. They released for $18 with a 17% discount for um, a game that they reckon takes 16 to 20 hours to beat. Um, people who wish listing the games but don't pl- pay at all. <laughs> so uh, they reckon their free demo showed up in the free-to-play hub, but they never made it onto the Steam front page. So possibly the people who are seeing the game in the free-to-play hub aren't the kind of people to pay for a game anyway. They reckon that um, their game's not hugely appealing, but it uh, doesn't look great until you just start trying to play it. And maybe the uh, the 16,000 people who wish to sit it were, uh, <clears throat> were waiting for it to be discounted or to see where the game come, goes after release. And then maybe the wrong day to release. The major- they say the majority of indie games release on Tuesday, Thursday or Friday. They release on Tuesday and they... Actually, it's Tuesday because it's less crowded. They reckon maybe it's less crowded for a reason, which very possible. Uh, it's just a bit tragic, really. Mm. I mean, that sucks though. Like, it sucks for the game developers, and in terms of they worked so hard for to make this game, and then when it comes out, it just no one's buying this. Yeah, it's really, um, really a tr- bit of a tragedy. What's the biggest but, reason out of those ones you see? My theory is that it's a combination of it not making it to the main Steam page. So the, um, the issue of people who wishlisted it aren't the kind of people to pay for a game. And the wrong data release. I think a lot of people probably aren't looking for a game to play on, on Tuesday. And are more likely to look for a game that comes out on the weekend. Hmm. It also depends on maybe like file size. Like how much was the file size for this game? I don't know, but probably not a lot. And most games, I don't think most people care that much. But I think also wishlisting a game isn't a promise to buy it. I think a lot of people use it as a discount tracker. That's uh, yeah. why use it. I put a game on there, uh, wait until I think about it later or it comes up on a discount. Uh, see if I'm still interested. And then, yeah, when, so. and then when the Steam sale comes in, then you go, oh, yeah, I'll get it. Yeah, and I think this is partly to do with Steam having such extreme discounts. I think having every store competing for free, like, big discounts, and now giving out free games. The um, like, Basically, every store now is giving out free games for a subscription. So what are you, uh, you going to do? Are you going to buy a, a game? That, or are you going to wait until you get free games that are usually pretty well regarded. And the other annoying part about this is the fact that once you get the discount, it just, it, it won't be a, it won't it won't be a much of a big discount, would it? No, probably not. Yeah. Like I'm on the Warrior Orbs page at the moment and it, right now it's going down for 27.99 right now. Yeah, that's uh odd though. 
the releases, the number they've got on the website is probably uh, USD. Nope, Australian. Yes, I mean, the number that they're listing in the web, the article that I'm reading is probably oh. USD. Oh, yeah, fair enough. Yeah. Do you reckon this sort of practice should should be um, phased out, though? Like giving I up- think it's, it's great for consumers and bad for developers. I mean, how much percent would they get, though, from, from a sale? Like, let's say, for example, if I were to... Spend the- takes 30%. So you get 70% of your money back from a, a game sale on Steam. Yep. The um, Which is fairly standard. Most platforms take about 30%. It's only really Epic that make a big deal about taking less. Yeah. And the- I see that they have received um, awards. They've got an award for uh, DreamHack Winter 2018 Best Adventure. And... An Epic Mega Grant, which I assume is funding from Epic to finish their game. Which surprisingly, <laughs> the game is not Epic exclusive. Yeah, that's interesting. Is that the reason why? Could you say this is the reason why most games are also moving to Epic though, because of the of the practices such as this? Well, the um, being able to getting uh, getting more a bigger cut is appealing. I think a lot of the triple A's are going Epic exclusive, like even not just the triple A's, but a lot of companies are getting huge amounts of money to go Epic exclusive. And as a developer, you would be a complete idiot not to take that because that's guaranteed money. You have no idea that your game will sell anything near what they'll make from you'll make from an exclusivity deal. So this, so this type of, so this kind of deal, it puts them in a lose-lose situation in the end, doesn't it? Yeah, either you go exclusive and um, get locked into one platform and take the money that you're being offered, or you don't and risk not making any money at all, like these people did. So I don't know if they were ever offered an exclusivity deal. Um, but they've made, uh, what do they say, 375 sales in three days at, let's say, $15 because that was the launch deal price. I'm just putting up a calculator to do that. So that's $5,625 overall, minus the valve cut. That's just under 4000 American dollars, so $3,940 or so. Wait, say that again? One. Uh I'm just based on the, the launch price. I'm getting $3,940. Wow, that's not much. No, and they've been working on this since 2018 at least, judging by the award. Yeah. So they, they're not making their money back on this. How many people are there in that company? No, no clue. I mean, 3,000. assuming just a handful. Yeah, 3,000, that's not going to... Yeah, that won't cover the staff costs and whatnot. Yeah, it does. It, like stories like these, it makes you makes you makes you feel like oh, game design. It takes out the veneer of it being a cre- being a cool world. It's it's in reality, it's just a harsh world that everyone has to fight for themselves, kind of thing. Yeah, I mean that's true of any artistic field, any field really in general. Ninety percent of what you see is gonna be crap. And even if it's not crap, it's going to be completely ignored by most people. Like, how many uh, Renaissance painters can you identify? A handful. Name them. Uh, Raphael, Leonardo da Vinci, Michelangelo. Um... You can't just list the Ninja Turtles. No, I'm not. I am not. No, oh, yeah. Okay, Ninja Turtles. Yeah, okay, fair enough. Um, Van, wait, Van Gogh? Van Gogh wasn't Renaissance, was he? No. 
Dang. Ah, uh, yeah, like I said, it's off the top, off the top of my head, I can only name, like, the ninja, besides the Ninja Turtles, um... <laughs> Um, you know, and here's a Wikipedia link to go in the show notes of the uh, a list of Renaissance artists. And there's a lot more of them than you just named, but nobody knows who they are. Only art people would know who they are. And there's a lot more game developers now than there were Renaissance artists who uh, have been significant enough for us to remember them 500 years later. Just curiously, though, are we gonna are we ever gonna see? Um... Steam and Epic get called out for this type of practice, though? Or will, do you reckon it will just be under the table? I don't think it's Steam's fault. I don't think it's Steam's fault. I don't think it's Epic's fault. I think in this case, it's just a, a flop. It happens. I, I don't know how to explain it other than that. Yeah. Uh, the, the developer doesn't know how to explain it. And I don't know if there's anything Steam could have done to push the game more or make it clearer that people should buy it. See the pro. See uh, what I'm thinking is like, even if you release a game, like Steam should offer some services. Like, say, um, if you well, if your game doesn't work out, we could pay. We could we can um help you out, kind of thing. We can prom- help you out with your sale of the games. Why kind of would they? Steam wouldn't make any money from that. You can't make money by bailing out people who aren't making money to begin with. Yeah. If you loan money to people who aren't making money, then you lose your money. I, I guess so. I mean, I, I'm just, I'm just, re- I'm just feeling sorry for the guys who made the game. That's all. I mean, absolutely. Yeah. I wish, um, like, I wish there was some way their game could have done better because it looks like they put a lot of effort into it. I haven't played it myself, but you know, it's better than those shitty asset flips that were all over Steam a few years ago. Oh, uh, you mean they're still doing it now, though? Like, what was that yeah. game I played a while back? Uh, Walking Simulator, <laughs> which is basically a asset flip of of a Death Stranding. If you think if you play it, yeah, it used to be a lot worse though. There'd be shitty games with no effort pumped out every every day, and there's so many games releasing on Steam that every day that nobody can keep up. Yeah, but uh, something on a, a lighter note. Our next science topic is about autistic people leading new studies. And the uh, article here points out that autistic people have different burnout to neurotypical people. And for that reason, autistic people tend to gravitate to different work. Um, Obviously, the stereotype of an autistic person is good with computers or some technical skill that doesn't involve talking to people. Uh, Things like um, being able to work in a situation where you can focus on a single task, like data gathering in this case, it seems, is really, uh, I think it's a really great place to put autistic people because it, it plays to their strengths. I agree with you there. I mean, it's good to see some representation in uh, in in that in that area. To be honest, yeah, I think it's great to be seeing more um, more representation of autistic people. It's um, also great to have jobs that favor autistic people because autistic people often have trouble fitting into a regular work environment. And instead of just shoving them in there and saying square peg round hole, deal with it. If you can get them a job in something like this, then a uh, you know working to their strengths, then you save neurotypical people from not working to their own strengths. You give the autistic people a strength to work to. You get better quality work. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. 
LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I've had both of them. I don't see what there is to lose. Yeah. Um, I'm seeing the one of the articles here and they're saying, um, some, someone's saying like many of the new studies grow out of the social science practices established for other marginalized property, um, populations. Still, the shift towards including autistic people's perspectives have has not been painless. Some scientists worry about introducing bias when someone with the condition under investigation is on the research team. But uh, Nicolate, yeah, oh, I can see why they're concerned about that, and obviously, it's something the research teams need to work on. But it um, also the the article also points out that. Autistic people, like, you can't study autistic people using a system designed for neurotypical people, or yeah. you get bad data. Your data's going to be all messed up. You know, the, the old saying, judge a, um, judge a fish by its ability to climb a tree. If you've got something completely unsuited to the task at hand, you're going to get absolutely terrible results. I think it's good to see that the science world is not doing the whole one-size-fits-all approach anymore. Yeah. Oh, and also um, in this article, there also another concern uh, that includes autistic people in the research could decrease its rigor. As the person points out, to work she's done um, using survey instruments that autistic people help her modify. Among suggested adjustments to ambiguous response um, options was use per- using percentages, such as I do this activity something percentage of the time but autistic yeah, people yeah i see but, that and it goes on to say that autistic people with uh, intellectual disability have discomfort with percentages in that case your test instrument should be optimized to gather data from autistic people with intellectual disabilities there's no reason you can't like if you're studying if you're studying autistic people with disability intellectual disability, then tailor your study to get data from them. I don't see why they think it's an issue to do that. I don't know, maybe like maybe social science research is more into that sort of stuff, but the sort of stuff I have an interest in doesn't tend to I don't see why, you know, coming up with a coming up with a test instrument to analyze the test subject correctly in any other field i don't think would be an issue so why is it an issue in social science because it's a grow because it's a growing field and you are one while it's growing you are you're bound to get problems like these for example so yeah that, that's just any growing field yeah psychology in the 50s was full of nutcases freud you know how much of freud is still considered accurate Huh, not not a lot. I mean, exactly. that's more minute, but not a lot. I mean, so in fifty years, will we throw out this data? Wait, fifties aren't fifty years ago. <laughs> How did I get that old? In seventy years, will we throw out this data because we've come up with something better? Maybe, but that's the point of science. You you study something, and when you get better data, you study that data. You you know. Doing a study now doesn't fix it in stone. It's not like Freud, um, Freud said your id and your ego like to do salsa. And if someone does a study that finds out your id and your ego like to tango, then, you know, it's not locked in that they have to do the salsa. Am I getting a bit 
weird. Yes, <laughs> you are. But uh, I, okay, I will say this um, before we move on. Um, I love the last bit that the author has written, that the uh, author for the report written, uh, autistic voices should be heard and acknowledged first and foremost. Uh, she says, autistic adults, she adds, have the right and perhaps the duty to speak for ourselves. Yeah. I, I agree with her. I agree yeah, with that. Um, I think it's a big part of uh, disability um, social work these days to make sure that disabled people are speaking for themselves because we've had uh, carers and nurses and people who look after the disabled people speaking for them for years, but now people are realizing, you know, there's better, you get better results if you listen to the people with the actual issue. Yeah. But uh, moving on, what are you playing, DJ? I'm playing Legends of Rune Terra. And what is that? Uh, that is a card game that Riot Games has introduced uh, brought out and it features some of the league of legends characters i so sorry about the other uh, banging in the background if that's picked up i think it was my neighbors have decided now that after staying inside for six weeks they're going to go in and out all the doors <laughs> the um yes the the entry vestibule sort of thing of my uh apartment uh apartment block is a bit echoey and I haven't seen or heard anyone go in or out in days and now bang, crash, boom. But anyway, how is uh, how does Rune Terror go? Uh, Rune Terror, I'm starting to play this game and so far it's very interesting in terms of it's not like your traditional Magic the Gathering cards uh, where you have like, oh, you have an instant or an enchantment or anything like that. Um <laughs> With Rune Terror, so each each player begins the match with a hand of four playing cards, randomly selected, uh, 20 point health nexus, and zero mana. And before the match, each player had the option to trade out. So, and when on the beginning of the game, you you take a, you take a card and stuff. Um, the mana grows per turn, so it's a it's not like a magic where you get as much land you, you get as much land and then you um, for each turn. It's a luck of the it's. Um, it, magic is luck of the draw with um, Rune Terra, it's different. So Okay. So with this one, there are three types of cards. You've got the champions, followers, and spells. Uh, your champions are the most powerful cards. Your followers consist of the all the normal playable cards, and spells are basically the effects. Does it feel well-balanced? It does feel well-balanced. It, it, it has moments of um where you just go, oh, okay, this game is getting a bit too broken here. But most of the time, it does feel balanced. So, But I, I'm starting to play this game, so I've, I haven't really delved into it too much. Okay, will you be going back to it? Yeah, it's it, it's a fun it, it's fun when you play it against the AI, and I think um I also played it with um a couple of a couple of my mates, and yeah, we got the tar beaten out of us. <laughs> yeah, that tends to be the way things go with card games for me too. Yep, <laughs> you just go ah, I just got thrashed. So, what would you rate this? Um, I would rate this four and a half out of five. The one thing that really bugged me about the one thing that bugged me about this game is the um the microtransactions, and you got a lot of game economy as well in that game. Kind of turns you off, but what can you do? Yeah, fair enough. So, I've been playing uh, Crisis. Oh, very nice. Yes. 
has it it's actually uh, has, actually good? Like, so, I it's just a meme. <laughs> has but, it melted your computer yet? Uh, only in the final battle, really. Really? The game itself is not terribly well optimized for modern computers because this was released back in 07 before multi-core was the big thing. And they they bet on uh, single-core, high-performance single-cores for the future when we've gone with multi-core. So the, um, the game's just not uh, not terribly well optimized for modern PCs because it isn't, um, you know, it, it just beats that single core. Oh, man. Yeah, but the uh, the gameplay and the story is really good. And, you know, the, uh, the whole alien reveal, pretty much uh, given up by, um, by everything. Right. Everyone knows this about aliens now. But uh, I noticed the blurb on Steam completely gives it away. Are you going to uh, get the expansions as well? Yeah, I've already got the expansions. I actually bought this uh, a few years back for uh, Crisis Warhead, which is a spin-off about one of the side characters. And the uh, I did that for MechWarrior Living Legends. Because this this Crisis game, is it's not a remaster, isn't it? No, they did tease it. Like, there was a remaster leaked recently. But there's no uh, official, no official news yet, as far as I know. Hmm. Yeah. So, um, What's unfortunately, the, the the leak for the Crisis Remaster seemed to be for Crisis, but uh, the console ports of Crisis, which completely butcher the uh, the suit controls. So instead of uh, having different suit modes. It all becomes a. Well, it's all contextual. So if you sprint, you automatically go to sprint mode, which I can see why that would be nice for a controller because you don't have enough buttons. But uh, it also means that you're burning suit power when you might want to be in. Like you can sprint normally if you're in any mode, or you can go to speed mode, and when you sprint, you drain suit power. So you might want to stay in armor mode and sprint slower. But you can't do that on console, and it doesn't look like you'll be able to do that in the re-release. Like, they're saying here that even the Nintendo Switch is going to have the Crisis Remastered. I'm thinking myself, <laughs> wow. like, how is that going to work? That would take a hell of a uh, optimization job. <laughs> yeah. yeah. What's the biggest flaw you've encountered in this game besides optimization? Probably, hmm, it's a good one, because I don't think there's a lot of flaws in it. Uh, well, I mean, I like everything. It's got a... I love that you can take a minigun and mow down the jungle like that scene in Predator. <laughs> I love that these small buildings are destructible. So you can uh, roll through a, um, you know, you throw a grenade into a tin shack and the tin shack collapses. Nice. Uh, I like that you can, like, the levels are fairly open-ended, so you can, you don't have to approach it directly from the, uh, you know, you don't have to go directly down the path the game sets for you. You can go stealth or go loud, grab a, an armored vehicle, grab a, a light vehicle and zip in there really quickly. So multiple options of completing the mission. Yeah. Huh. So kind of like DSX. Uh, yeah, kind of. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm really looking forward to getting onto the sequels. I think the, um, I think the weakest part is that when the alien reveal happens, you then, um, like, the big reveal at the beginning of the third act, you then spend a reasonable amount of time going through a zero-g section, which is really nice. Like, when you shoot your guns, you drift backwards and everything. It's, uh, 
just a really nicely done section. And I think the uh, I think the third act could have gone longer. Mm. So you, you do the zero G section, you do a section where you escape from the island, then you do the final boss fight. I think they could have stretched it out, add in more alien stuff. But apart from that, it's a very good game. So how would you, how how long would you, how much you rate this out of how many nerdy beanies? Oh, uh, four point seven out of five. Because the only thing I can really fault is the um, the optimization. Yeah, it's still a gorgeous game even now. So on to our shoutouts for this week. Uh, we found out that. The Scrubs co-star Sam Lloyd passed away at 56 on the 30th of April. He played Ted Buckland on Scrubs. He was the nephew of Christopher Lloyd from Back to the Future and was in more than 60 films and TV series. And he was a member of the air cappella group, the Blankson Beatles tribute band, The Buttles. He died from an inoperable brain tumor and metastatic lung cancer. Uh, next is a on the 3rd of May, 2020, the Kazuna AI hosted a stay at home with AI Chan project. Uh, what is the deal with this, DJ? Oh, um, so Kazuna... What is this stuff? <laughs> Kazuna AI, come on, she's she's uh, basically an a a YouTube um AI, and so she's got a so she made a co- um project called the Stay at Home with iChan, and so to help out with people who having who want to have fun at home, so she's kicked off the project by streaming a concert that she had, and it was this was the first live concert called Hello World, which is now available to watch for free for one day only. So and that concert was held on the December 29th last year at Sepdiver um, City and December 30th at Sep Osaka Bayside. So the, and the second part of the project was also selling the goods which are themed after matching with Kazuna AI. But yeah, with Kazuna AI, she's a, a virtual YouTuber with art and self-proclaimed artificial intelligence. Okay. And she's famous for a, for a lot of memes as well. Okay. So, also on the 3rd of May, Sam Raimi's Spider-Man turned 18. That was a uh, that was the introdu- that was the introduction of Toby Maguire as yeah. Peter Parker. And is this the one that has the weird upside down kiss? Yes. Yes it is. Yeah, so uh this movie came out um in 2002 was the first movie to earn 40 million dollars in a single day, gross over 100 million in its Friday to Sunday domestic launch. And then make 114 million weekend debut with 71 million second weekend, which is also a record. And for remembrances, on the 29th of April, Irfan Khan. Sahabat Zed. Sorry, I don't know how to pronounce that. You know, I'm just going to call him Irfan Khan. <laughs> Go on, Professor. <laughs> Sahabzadi Irfan Ali Khan. Am I close? Yeah. He's an Indian actor who was uh, famous for being in Hindi and British and American films. He, he was cited as the, one of the finest actors in Indian cinema. His career spanned 30 years. Uh, he was in The Amazing Spider-Man, Life of Pi, Jurassic World, and Inferno. He was also in uh, Slumdog Millionaire, which uh, his first role was in Salam Bombay. So uh, uh, maybe, DJ, you could add into the show notes a couple of other Indian movies he was in. Yeah. But uh, he died from a neuroendocrine tumor at the age of 53 in Mumbai. On the 4th of May, 1938, Kano Jigoro, a Japanese educator and athlete, the founder of judo. He uh, 
came up with judo as the first Japanese martial art to get widespread international recognition and the first to become an official Olympic sport. He's also attributed to creating the black and white belts and the darn rating. So in 1915, he described judo as the way of the highest or most efficient use of both physical and mental energy. Through training in the attack and defense techniques of judo, the practitioner nurtures their physical and mental strength and gradually embodies the essence of the way of judo. Thus, the ultimate objective of judo discipline is to be utilized as a means of self-perfection and thenceforth to make a positive contribution to society. It sounds like one of of those ads, you know, like, with the use of judo, you will be a positive member of society. Yeah, it kind of does. But uh, he also worked as director of primary education for the Ministry of Education. So he died of pneumonia at 77 aboard the motor vessel Hikawi Maru. On the 4th of May 2008, Fred Bauer died. Fred Bauer was an American organic chemist and food store technician, notable for designing and patenting the Pringles packaging. <laughs> God, that's a... Developed uh, frying oils and freeze-dried ice cream. And my favorite part, part of his ashes were buried in a Pringles can. And on two famous birthdays, on the 4th of May... Oh, of course it's bloody done this, hasn't it? It's gone and moved my cursor, so I'd forgotten where I am in the show notes. 4th of May, 1655, Bartholomew Cristofori. Thank you. Uh, Facebook so name. Bartholomew Cristofori di Francesco. Italian maker of musical instruments invented the piano, which is crazy. I had no idea the piano was that young. Oh, yeah. But this was before... Uh, but the piano was, was, I think, before he created two other instruments as well. Yeah. So, you know, third time's a charm. <laughs> so the first unambiguous evidence for the piano comes from the 1700 inventory of the Medici. So the entry in the inventory is as follows. Un apassembolo di Bartolomo Cristofori di Nova Invention Zephala Piano. I, why did you not translate that for me, DJ? Oh, the translation's right below you. Oh, okay. And so that is, without my horrible Italian reading, an Alpisembalo by Bartolomeo Cristofori of new invention that produces soft and loud with two sets of strings at unison pitch with soundboard of Cyprus without rows. And uh, the, it goes on to describe it in considerable detail, but unfortunately that instrument is now lost. Bartolomeo is born in Padua, Republic of Venice. On the 4th of May, 1852, Alice Little. Alice Pleasance Hargreaves, in her childhood, was an acquaintance and photography subject of Lewis Carroll. One of the stories he told her during a boating trip became the Alice's Adventures in Wonderland. So when Alice Little was 10, she was traveling on a boat to uh, Godstow for a picnic with, uh, with Lewis Carroll whose real name was Charles Dodgson. Dodgson, sorry. And he told her and her sisters a story. And this time, uh, Little asked Mr. Dodgson to write it down for her, but he didn't get around to that for a few months, at which point he gave her the manuscript of Alice's Adventures Underground. Still debating about the whole Alice thing, though. Yeah, actually, that's interesting that, um, you know, it's a story about Alice given to a girl named Alice, but it might not be based on Alice. <laughs> and as in Australia, Alice, who the F is Alice? <laughs> so on the, uh, the 4th of May, 1966, we have Jane Louise McGrath, the English-born Australian cancer support campaigner and former uh, wife of former Australian cricketer Glenn McGrath. 
In 2005, they founded the McGrath Foundation, an organization dedicated to raising money to fund breast care nurses in uh, rural and regional Australia and to increase breast awareness in young women. So on the third day of the, so the third day of the first Sydney Test Cricket match at the Sydney Cricket Ground each year is known as Jane McGrath Day. Spectators wear pink to show their support. And on the uh, the 5th of January 2013, Prime Minister Julia Gillard announced an 18.5 million donation to the foundation from the Australian government, which allowed all 44 existing uh, nurse positions to continue and open 10 more places. Which, uh, you know, rural health in Australia gets overlooked a lot. We've got the flying doctor, but there's a lot of things that uh, people in the bush don't get checked out because they, you know, the flying doctors for emergencies, they don't get into town often enough to go to the doctor. And yeah. And they rely on um, char- charitable donations as well. Yeah. They're one of the one of the good charities, as far as I'm aware. They haven't had any scandals. Yeah. Uh, so on the 4th of May, 1970, Will Arnett. Will Emerson Arnett is the Canadian-American actor, comedian, and producer. He's best known for playing BoJack Horseman and George Oscar Bluth II in Arrested Development. He's received a nomination for a Primetime Emmy for Outstanding Supporting Actor in a Comedy. He's also appeared in Blades of Glory, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, and he got four Primetime Emmy Awards for... Sorry, four Primetime Emmy Award for Outstanding Guest Actors in a Comedy nominations for playing Devin Banks in 30 Rock. He's also been in... Um, he also plays Batman in the Lego movie, which is the best Batman movie. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And he's and thanks to his um, involvement with the Lego Group, they put him as the host of the show Lego Masters. Yeah, is that the same as that one that um, Hamish and Andy do? I think so. I think so. I saw an ad for this. And there is actually, I cannot believe there is a thing called Lego Masters Australia. Yeah, but that's been going for longer than the American one because the American one only started this year, but. Um, Hamish and Andy's Lego show has been going for a couple of years. It started in 2019, this first season for the okay. Australian one. Sec- uh, second season. Yeah, at least I this. Well, something original for once. <laughs> yeah, the American version. Yeah, it, ca- it came out this year. Okay. And that's the first season. So it's been renewed for a second season and yeah. Yep. So uh, the events of interest. On the 2nd of May, the was the 50th anniversary of Hunter S. Thompson and Ralph Stedman's trip to the Kentucky Derby. So in 1970, uh, Hunter S. Thompson wrote the article, The Kentucky Derby is Decadent and Depraved, which is the very first gonzo journalist article, which uh, Hunter's style was basically go in and put himself in the scenario that gonzo journalism is about first-person experience rather than just just the facts reporting. Yeah. And uh, Thompson and Stedman couldn't see the race from that position, but decided to focus on the celebration and depravity surrounding the event. On the 4th of May, 1961, Malcolm Ross and Victor Prava attained a new altitude record for man balloon flight in the Strato Lab 5 at uh, 34.67 kilometers. So the, the Navy pilot commander Malcolm Ross and flight surgeon lieutenant commander Victor Prava ascended to a world record height in the uh, Strato Lab, and the record still held into 
20, well, this article is from 2011, but uh, I wonder how high is that compared to Felix Baumgartner? Oh, I think wasn't Felix Baumgartner was, um, didn't he just fall? Yeah, he's the highest free fall, but he was in a balloon. Felix Baumgartner, the main jump. Uh, from here, it's 38,969.3 meters. Okay, so a bit higher. Yeah, and uh, I will say this: um, that whole event though was tragic as well. At, after after they broke the record, uh, Felix or the other uh, guys, the other guys, yeah, the uh... oh yeah. So I see here they wore uh, Mark IV suits, pressure suits, which impressed NASA, and they used a version of it for the Project Mercury astronauts. Yeah. Unfortunately, after an almost 10-hour flight and a horizontal distance of 140 miles, uh, Prowler drowned when he slipped into the water and his suit filled with seawater. And I see here, according to Wikipedia, um, the highest record is held by Alan Eustace, who reached 41,424 metres in a helium balloon and then returned via parachute jump, which is like three kilometers three kilometers higher than Felix Baumgartner. Hmm. So why didn't we hear about this guy? Sponsorship, I guess. Yeah. Um, so our last event of interest for this week is the 4th of May 2013 theatrical re-release of Doctor Who and the Daleks. So on this day in 2013 in the United Kingdom, the 1965 movie Doctor Who and the Daleks had a theatrical re-release. These are notorious for uh, basically Terry Nation owned the rights to some of the designs from Doctor Who, and he took them away with him to, um, and they created a couple of movies starring Peter Cushing, who you might know better as uh, Tarkin from Star Wars. So, except they had a lot of weird stuff. The uh, the Doctor was instead fully human instead of the debatable half human uh, but being in color they is actually the first instance of different colored daleks traditional daleks all had one design and originally daleks were going to have flamethrowers but this was vetoed for health and safety and because it would be too frightening for a young audience so imagine, they, ima- oh, imagine they do this imagine they do this now and be like eh that doesn't even scare me yeah I mean, at one point, the BBC was receiving complaints about the Doctor Who theme because it terrified a child. So, unfortunately, they had to replace the flamethrowers with a CO2 blaster made out of a fire extinguisher. But that's all we uh, have for this week. DJ, where can they find us? Uh, they can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Um, most of our, all of our stuff will be on our show notes. They can also find us on That's Not Canon, where we have an archive of old episodes, and they can check out some of the old podcasts. Like, uh, what is the Podfather's new etymology podcast? I, I cannot, uh, the name is so long, I cannot even pronounce it. Can you try it, Professor? I've just got to pull up the uh, <laughs> link here. Uh, so we have an assemblage of grandiose and bombastic grandiloquence, and a new one from uh, the last couple of weeks. The Mistal Museum of Mystery, Morbidity, and Mortality. Uh, nice. it's, uh, check those out. Um, they're both quite good productions. Uh, the Mistal Museum is actually probably the fastest growing uh, fan base out of any of the uh, Son Canon shows. So definitely check that one out because, it, you know, that many people can't be wrong. Yeah. So do you have anything to add, DJ? I've got nothing to add but to say uh, take care of each other, stay hydrated, and see you next time. Hoover. You stole my line again. <laughs>
Have a good week. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.